And I believe that's it. Open your Bibles to the gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. 41 to 52. This is, uh, brings us to the end of chapter 2. We've been going slowly through the first two chapters. You'll remember who's writing the gospel. Luke is a doctor, but he's also a historian. So Luke is taking his time and being very careful to establish who this child is. And he's establishing it through a variety of, of avenues of testimony. He's using testimony, which is the same that we would do in our own uh, American jurisprudence. We would use the testimony of credible witnesses. So we have that here. And today we're going to get the final piece of testimony from Jesus himself. That's what happens in the passage today. We've heard testimony from heaven and we've heard testimony from humans. We have the testimony of Gabriel, who made the announcements. We have the testimony of Elizabeth and Zechariah testimony of Mary and Joseph. We have the testimony of Simeon and Anna at the temple. Uh, We have testimony of the shepherds. And then we have the angels uh, who testify to the shepherds. So we have testimony after testimony, but there's a question you ask. What did Jesus know about himself? Who did Jesus think he was? I have a lot of people, skeptics, who who don't believe um, in Christianity will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, we'll take a look at it here at 12 years old. He claims to be God at 12. Because you want to ask the question, at 30 years old, did he just simply get caught up in, in the nationalistic fervor in Israel? And they kind of just elected him as their leader and pushed him out front to be their pseudo-Messiah, if you will? What did Jesus think about who he was and what he was here to do? We're going to find that today in this passage. I've titled it something different. This passage generally will get the title, Jesus Left Behind. I've titled it, Jesus Stays Behind. It's the final episode in the infancy gospel account, according to Luke. Did Jesus really understand who he was? Let's take a look. Luke 2, 41 to 52. Hear now the word of God. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. 
Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone, by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than Jesus. Father, whether here in this sanctuary or by way of the live stream on the internet, if there is anyone who is not in a saving relationship with Jesus, make this a word of salvation. Raise them from death to life and give the gift of repentance and faith. For those in the midst of storm winds that are blowing, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest. All things to all people that some might be saved. So come now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Jesus stays behind. Three headings. Number one, the event. Number two, their encounter. And number three, our edification. This is the only word we have from Jesus until his public ministry. The only recorded word in sacred scripture from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it comes when he's 12. This is the only real event that we have any explanation for. We know of the event from Matthew of the Magi that came, and we know of the event of their flight to Egypt when Herod was pursuing uh, the babies, uh, the boy babies, to and under. So this is all we have. And we are to make much of this for To wish we had more is to wish in vain. So we ask the question, why this? Of all the possible accounts of his life up to 30, why this? This has to be significant. It has to be monumental. There has to be a deep message in it for us today. There are a number of ways to interpret it. I'll just give you a couple examples, and then I will show you my way. Number one, the parents were negligent. Did they just leave him out of negligence? We'll look at that. Number two, Jesus was distracted or disobedient. Number three, because Jesus is both God and man, it would be nice to have a story that relates to all of us and all parents can relate to this, can't we? Ever left your child behind somewhere? Ever lose sight? Come on, we've all done that. And you know the feeling, don't you? It's an incredible feeling. It it is, it's, it's unimaginable. Imagine three days. So is it a story that we're to relate to as, as people and parents? I, I don't think, I don't think any of that is true. Here's what I think. Jesus purposed to stay behind without his parents' permission. Why would the spotless, sinless son of Joseph and Mary cause this kind of unimaginable pain? Why would he do it? If he intentionally stays behind, he's intentionally causing them pain. He knows that. Why would he do that? That's what we're going to take a look at. You, you may be familiar with some of these extra-biblical accounts of, of, of stories of the life of Jesus, but none of it is in sacred scripture. So, so none of it really matters to us. You may have heard of the infancy gospel of Thomas, and you'll hear about such miracles as Jesus fashioned a, a number of birds out of clay and, and breathed on them, and they flew away. And one day walking with his mother, he, he commanded a, 
a palm to bend down and refresh his mother with fruit. Another day he was, he was, he was bumped by a child and he cursed the child and the body withered and died. You can read all sorts of stories, but this is the only true, inerrant, infallible story we have in the life of Jesus prior to his public ministry. This is it. So it has to be significant. It has to have a meaning for us today as well. Ready? Let's take a look at the event. The event will give us some great insight to to what's going on. Let's look at the event. Number one, Luke 2, 41 to 42, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover when he was 12 years old. That's significant. We'll talk about it in a moment. They went up to the feast according to the custom. Three primary feasts that they were required by God's command to go to Jerusalem, especially the men. Uh, The women were not really required, but many would go. Of course, Mary's here because she's quite devout. We already read through that. So the three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Tabernacles. Take a look at Deuteronomy 16, 16. You can find it in other places such as Exodus 23, but here it is. Three times a year, God says the men must appear before the Lord at the festival of unleavened bread. That's what this is, feast of the Passover, eight days. They were really required to only stay two or three. Remember, much has happened because they're dispersed. They're not all living in proximity to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph and Jesus have to come from 80 miles away. That's a three-plus-day journey. So it's not easy to get there. So, so they've kind of relaxed a little bit of the, the demands, if you will. But most who are devout would go to the three, and certainly as many as possible would go to Passover. Uh, the Festival of the Weeks and the Festival of the Tabernacles. So those are the three. This is Passover. This is deep. This is significant. Well, let's talk for just a moment about Jesus being 12. We don't know if this is the first time Jesus went or not, but we know that when the sons were coming of age, in the Bible, the age of majority is 20. And what that means is at 20 years old, uh, the men could be drafted into military service. They could be used for, for, for the army. And, and at 20, they could be taxed. That, that's, that's the biblical construct of, of the age of, of majority. But it's different. In the Talmudic times, the age is changed to 13. And I'm going to show you why, and I'm going to show you how significant this is. The father, this is really important. The father pronounces a blessing over the child at at 13. And listen to the blessing. He prays a blessing over the child, thanking God that now at 13 he is no longer responsible for the actions of his son. Fathers, wouldn't you love to pray that over your children at 13? Wow. I like that. That would have served me well with Brock. Yes, it would. What does that mean? Well, this is deep. This is very deep, and we're going to get to it. But what it means is something has happened. This son now, has, has, his status has changed. You familiar with the term bar mitzvah? Okay, you're familiar with the term bar, meaning son, mitzvah, meaning commandment. At 13, the child, you heard of bat mitzvah for the, for the daughters, the daughters of God at 12. 13, he's now become a son of the commandment. What does that mean? It's important that you get this. It means now that he, this son, this child now has the same rights, the same responsibilities, the same duties, and the same privileges as his father. 
In the eyes of the law and the commandment, listen, he is equal now to his father. Equality with his father. So stay with me. If that's the understanding in Israel of what it means now to be a son of the commandment and a coming of age, keep that in the back of your mind. And we're going to go deeper in just a moment. Okay? Son of commandment, son of the law, equal now in the sight, all of the religious rituals, ceremonies, duties, responsibilities, the child now must fulfill all of that. It's now his turn to fast and to pray and to serve and all of those things. But in the eyes of the law, he is now equal to his and responsible for every aspect of his life. Okay? You see that? All right. Make sure that you keep that in your mind. We're going to go to number two. So understanding right now the event is important. It's Passover. And where he is at Passover, now the encounter. And then we'll lay it out. 243 to 47. After the feast, his parents returned home unaware that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Thinking he was with them, they traveled for a day. They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. Let's pause. Some might be thinking, how in the world do you miss your child for a day as you're traveling? Well, they weren't traveling in a car for for four people or for six in a big van. They were traveling in what's called a caravan. So there's a large group of people. There's safety in numbers. And back in that day, it was much better to travel in groups. Then you have to understand the context of that time frame and how they would travel. So you could have a couple hundred people in a caravan, and they're coming from from 80, 85 miles away, three days, three-plus days in a journey. So there's a large group, relatives and friends, and they're all together. And they would travel like this. They would get the children out front so that they weren't lagging behind. And after the children would come the women, and then after the women would come the men. So it would be very, very easy for Mary to assume that Joseph had Jesus and Joseph to assume that Mary had Jesus or Jesus was with the relatives and his friends. And if this is not the first time that they've ever taken him, then he's established a pattern where he would stay with them and go back home. But he's not with them. Something's happened. They've searched, and and he's not there. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. What you're going to read next is significant. We're not going to unpack it theologically really deep, but we just want to show the symbolic symbolism. After three days, anytime that you see three days, anytime, there's great symbolism in Scripture. And here's the one thing I want you to get out of this. Anytime, the third day, anytime you see that, the Old and the New Testament, it is all tied in. And what is it tied into? Three days is designed. Listen to what the writers of the Scriptures are trying to get us to understand. Three days direct our attention to an almighty act of divine intervention by God in his unfolding plan of redemption and salvation history. Every time that you read three days, every time that you hear the number three, it's, it's instructing us to be reminded of God's unfolding plan of redemption and, and his actions that he takes that take place during that time frame. Just a few, and, and, and you'll know this, and, and it'll sink a little more deeply. In the creation account, you have a creation account and you have a recreation account. 
In the creation account, when does life begin? Day, say it, three. Life begins on day three. That's instructive. In the recreation account, when does new life begin? Day three. Of course you know that. So there's great symbolism, and we could spend a whole day talking about it. How many patriarchs? Three. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the New Testament, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration with how many men? Three. The symbolism, Abraham and Isaac travel for how many days before they finally arrive at Mount Moriah and the substitute is there for Isaac so Abraham does not have to sacrifice him. How many days do they travel? Three. So for three days, Isaac is dead in the mind of his father, but on that third day, he is given back to to Abraham. We could go on and on. The, The Aaronic blessing, the priestly Aaronic blessing in the Old Testament May may the Lord bless and keep. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance and give you his peace. Three verses of the priestly blessing in which the tetragrammaton, that's Yahweh. That's the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. That's how they would write God. Y-H-W-H, three times in that ironic blessing. Three is everywhere. We could go on and on and on and on. So when you read this, don't just whiz by. Why not four days? Why not two days? Why not just after a few days? Or when they return? No. After three days, they found him in the temple. Oh, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking questions, and everyone was amazed at his Answers and his understanding. Now, where do they find him? They find him in the temple courts, which is commonly the place where teaching would, would, would go on. And I want you to be aware of one thing at the age of 12. This is the only time in all of Scripture where Jesus is identified as the student. This is it. Because when you look at that, he's there among the teachers. Didascalus is the Greek word for teachers. He is the didascalus after this. He is no longer the student. He is no longer learning, but now he's learning. Why? He's truly man. He's fully man. So he is growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's growing like everyone grows. But something is happening to him here at 12. So he's growing. He's sitting. He's asking questions. And and it makes sense. Do you want to know why it makes the most sense? I'm going to tell you why. He's with his parents for 12 years. He, he has a sense, the parents have a deep sense. How hard do you think it would be for Jesus to be sitting at the table, having dinner with his mother and father, asking for the deepest understanding of what the sacrificial system really is pointing to? How well do you think Joseph and Mary would have been able to lay out the fact that you, dear son, will be crucified? You will die. To save your people? No, they, 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 they couldn't unpack that. So Jesus had to be with the teachers of the law who, who, who could speak that truth into his life without any bias and, 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 and speak it as they knew it. So he stays and he asks. He hears the ble- Maybe a quarter of a million lambs are sacrificed at Passover. A million plus people are there. And he hears the bleeding of the the sheep and the lambs and the blood that is pouring out down the hill into the Kidron Valley. He knows what Passover means 
And he knows that Passover is pointing to him. So his mother Mary can't unpack that for him. Neither can Joseph. So he stays and he talks. And he listens. And he asks questions. And it's the last time that he does that. But there's tension in the text. We're going to see a rebuke and we're going to see a response. Ready? I want you to make certain you understand this is a real rebuke. Mary is angry. Mary is rebuking her son. This is real. This is not made up. We don't want to soften this encounter so that we can see it for what it truly is. Okay? Their response, their rebuke, Luke 2, 48. Generally, the man would speak, the father would speak, the man would speak, women were in the background. There's a reason that Mary's speaking. You'll see it come together in a moment. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Mary said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Notice, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You need to see the Greek word for anxiously, if you will. The Greek word, odunaho, is the Greek word that says to cause intense mental and spiritual pain. To cause it. This, listen to this. Mary said, we have been anxiously searching for you. Why have you caused us this kind of pain? This, why have you done this to us? Why? Three points. They were consumed by worry. They were compressed by torment. And they were crushed by grief. Absolutely. And it's real. So what's Mary doing to Jesus? Mary is accusing Jesus of betraying his calling as Joseph's son. Did you hear that? Mary is accusing Jesus of betraying. He's acted in rebellion He's acted in defiance. I'm certain he knows if I ask my parents if I can stay, what they're going to say. Right, parents? You know that. Of course not. Get, 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 get going. So he doesn't ask. But he also knows what he's going to cause. So Mary says, why did you intentionally rebel? That's sin. Be disobedient to hurt and to crush us like this. How dare you can only imagine what isn't in the inspired account. Imagine yourself. Right? You ever you lost a child, right? You for, for a few minutes in a store, in a grocery store, somewhere in the neighborhood, somewhere you lost for a few minutes. Your greatest concern, you get you find them, you find them. Oh, thank you. Then you grab them by the ear. What's the matter with you? Come over here. You got to get him first. You got to, oh, thank you, Jesus. Come here. I'll tell you something tonight. That's life. She's beside herself. And she doesn't even let Joseph speak. But there's a reason. Your father and I, son, his response. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
you see now the juxtaposition of father. If, if Joseph is speaking, your mother and I were searching. No, no, no. Your father and I. And he says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? He's no more my father than you and my mother. This is deep. Don't, yes, they're his earthly parents. But there's something that's happening here. You've ever heard people come out of the church and say, boy, the pastor really, he, he really, he went to meddling in my life today. I'm going to go to meddling right now. I'm going to meddle with you. Because this is deep. This is prof- And everyone has said something after the last two services. This is really deep. Jesus intentionally stays behind. He knows exactly what he's going to cause in the hearts of his mother, his earthly mother and father. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? What is he saying? Go back to what we just talked about as the son. And this is why they want to kill him all the more in his adult ministry when he claims to be the son of God. What does it mean to be a son? You have sons. You have sons, and you picture what it means to have your son, right? Lauren, you have a son. You know what that means to have a son. It's different in that cultural context. To be a son now is to be what? Equal with the father. I just showed you that. To be a son is to be equal, to have the same privileges, to have the same rights, to have the same responsibilities. In this context, to receive the same worship, the father and I are one. He is claiming eternal self-existence equality with the father he is the father's son not the son of mary yes he's the earthly mary gave birth to the man jesus christ but he's raising the bar he's telling them the deepest truth where was he what does he mean my father's where was he he's in the temple what does the temple represent The presence of God. It's God's, this is God's house. He says, didn't you know I had to be here? You of all people, you know, certainly you remember the virgin conception, the angelic announcement, the testimony of Simeon. We've spoken of these things. You know why I'm here. She's not ready to let him go. She's never ready to let him go. And you know what? None of us would be. Not one of us here would be ready to let our child go like this. Then, listen, they did not understand what he was saying. But then he went down. Don't miss this. So, so for some of the kids who might be thinking, mm, intentionally disobedient and yet not sinning. No, 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 no. No, you're not Jesus. Clear? Then he went down. You always leave Jerusalem and go down because of the elevation. He went down to Nazareth, listen, with them and was obedient. Why did he have to be obedient to his parents? Because he was a son of the commandment. And obedience to God is being obedient to your parents. But he wasn't disobedient in what he did, and I'm going to show you that in in a moment. But he goes down with them, and Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. I, I, I want you to get another thing. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? You know that he is the first Jewish rabbi to have ever said that kind of statement in the history of Israel? Yes, it's not a new concept from the Old Testament to the new. God was always father to his little children Israel. But he was never intimate and personal. Jesus has just raised the bar. 
my Father. And how does Jesus instruct you to pray? Our Father. Oh, we could spend weeks here, but we have not the time. Let us continue. So, not a new idea, but he raises the bar. I mean, we read Old Testament script, as a father pitieth his children, so I pity you, and, and all of those things. So we see the father-child relationship in the Old Testament, but now it's changed. It's personal. It's intimate. And isn't that what Christianity is all about? An intimate, personal, right relationship with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not about you coming to church. It's not about your religiosity. It's not about the rituals and, 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 and all of this. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about you in a relationship, a right relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's Christianity. That's what it means to be saved. That's what Jesus is telling them. Did you not know I had to be in my Father's house? The time is coming, and yet what does he do? For the next 18 years, at this point, his human mind, which has been growing, just like any human mind, he has to grow. There's no increase in his divinity. But his humanity has to grow. So now his human mind has the capacity to understand the mind of God. Did you not know I must be in my father's house? There are many. So when he says to the religious leaders that he is the son of God, now you understand more deeply why they want to stone him. He's claiming to be equal to God. A son in Israel at 13, bar mitzvah. They had no ceremony back then. You have to get to the dark ages, the, the latter end of the dark ages, before you have the bar mitzvah ceremony. But the numbers are exact. At 13, they became son of commandment. He's claiming equality with God. And that's when they desire to stone him all the more. Okay? Now, there's a change that takes place in the relationship, and it's instructive that we understand this. And then I'll show you the practical application. Ready? Mark 3, 31 to 35. So 18 years later, he goes into his public ministry. And now we get to see the change that takes place in his relationship with his human family and his relationship with his spiritual family, heavenly family. Okay? Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. A crowd sitting around him said, Your mother and brothers are outside. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Looking at those seated around him, he said, Here are my mother, brothers, and sisters, those who do God's will. Okay, make it practical. Parents, you, you take one of your children and you drop them off at a, someone's birthday party at their house. And you... you pull up and you see some of the kids outside say, hey, would you go in and, and tell Johnny that, that his mother's here? And Johnny hollers out, who is my mother? Oh, can't wait to get you home tonight. We'll have a little talk about who your mother is. See, we can't do those things. But see, we're not Jesus. This is instructing us on who he is. The, he's, the claim he's making here is clear. I'm not your son. I'm God's son. I'm your savior. So all of this is changing. And what he, what he gives of himself in separating himself in his family relationships, he expects from you and me as his disciples. How do we know that? 
Let's take a look at another passage. Very briefly, Luke 9, 59 to 62. This is what he expects of his disciples. Ready? This includes us. He said to a man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Do you you hear that? Okay, we'll go one more. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What's going on here? This is crazy. But this is what Jesus, what does Jesus demand? Did you know that the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say to you, seek the kingdom of heaven. Nowhere does it say that. Do you want to know what it says? It says, seek it first. That's it. God will tolerate no rival, nor should he. He will sit on the throne of your life or you'll sit on it, one or the other. And you understand the difference between the two. He will not share that throne with anyone. So now let's raise it even to the highest level here. Ready? This is, this is beautiful. And I'll explain it very simply. Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children his brothers and his sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. That sounds like madness, like some kind of a cult. You're, if I, I come to you and I have to hate now my mother and my father and my sisters and my brothers and, and, and yes, even my own life. That's what you're saying. What is he really saying in that passage? Here's what he's saying. It's very, very simple. He's saying the love that you have for your family, mother, father, sister, brother, child, compared to the love that you're supposed to have for me should look like hate. You understand what he's saying? He's not saying love the people in your life less. Love me more. I'm supposed to be on the throne of your life. So he's not telling us to hate family. But is it? It's a reminder, some of your families, you have believers and unbelievers in your family. You see the division and you see what happens. That happens. The gospel attracts and it repels. But he's not telling us to hate family members. He's telling us that the love that we have for them should look like hate compared to the love we have for him. That's the love that Jesus had for the Father. And if we're to be his disciples, that's the kind of love that we're to have for him. Don't love other people less. Don't, ever. He didn't ask you to do that. But he asked you to love him more. Love him more. Make Jesus your first priority in life. Seek first his kingdom. Finally, this is where we're going to meddle. And this is where you're going to take this home with you. And if you'd like, you can send me an email or a text. And I'll pray with you and for you. But this is the deepest part of this message right here our edification what what do we receive from this question why doesn't Jesus ask his parents for permission to stay behind in Jerusalem why answer because he is God I'm not done So first of all, that clears it up for all of you children who are listening to me right now. 
Okay? Let's be clear. Anybody by way of the internet, ask permission. You're not Jesus. Okay? But he's God. Now, what does that mean? As this applies to the passage and to our lives today, what does it mean? Why didn't Jesus have to ask permission of Joseph and Mary to stay behind? Because he was God. His authority overruled theirs. That's why Jesus could do this, causing his parents profound pain and not be wrong or sinful in doing so. He was not wrong. He was not disobedient. He was not rebellious. And he certainly was not sinful in doing what he did. Why? He was God. He was God incarnate. And that's why. And the message to you now is going to go deep. Did he cause pain to Mary and Joseph? Nod your heads. Did he cause intense pain? Think about your child being gone for three days. Take that one with you when you leave. The pain was so raw. And the pain was so real. I wonder if in the inspired text there's a few things left out. There just seems to be some things that would have been said. I don't know. Just three days is overwhelming. The the city is still packed with people trying to get out. And three days is a long time. Where is he? This child of promise, we've lost him. So the pain is real and the pain is raw. His sovereignty. Ready? God is sovereign. You understand what that means? God is sovereign over everything. That means he's sovereign over the planets, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's sovereign over everything, including everything in your life. God is sovereign over everything. Remember Dr. Sproul's great line, if there's one maverick molecule floating around anywhere in the universe that God is not sovereignly in control over, you can trust God for nothing. So either you have a sovereign God who's in control of everything and can be trusted, or you do not. God is sovereignly in control of everything, which entitled Jesus to do. Take a look. What he wanted, when he wanted, where he wanted. And how he wanted. And don't miss the last line. Without permission from or explanation to his parents, even to the point of pain. Oh, don't miss this. How does this apply to your life? How? Perhaps you do not expect God to ask you permission the next time he blows a storm wind into your life. Or maybe the one you're dealing with right now. But certainly on occasion, don't we ask God, please give us an explanation. What in the world is going on? God owes you no explanation, and God does not have to ask you permission. And yet that pain is real, and that pain is raw. Why? God is sovereign. God knows exactly what you need, when you need it, and how much of it you need. That's the deepest message in that passage. Did you not know that I had to be? Another way of translating it, instead of house, because you'll see house in italics. It wasn't in the original. Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? The Father's business in your life, he doesn't ask you for permission. He doesn't ask if it's okay. He doesn't give you an explanation. Why? He's sovereign, and he's in control. He's over all things, including the storm winds that blow into your life. So the next time you're dealing with a bit of pain, next time things get a little uncomfortable, 
little difficulty in your life, remember this message. Did you not know that I have to be about my father's business? Right? See it? How do we close? Real simple. Luke 2.40. Luke 2.40 is important to see. When you take this with you, you take that message with you. And, and one, more, one more point, but before you throw that up, Carlos, I'm not, look at me. We're, 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 we're in the middle of our own little storm wind, right? Kim's father passed away last weekend. So they're over there now. So we, we, we all deal with storms. I'm not minimizing your storm winds. I'm not minimizing your pain. I'm not doing that. I deal with pain every single day. Some of the most intense, most profound pain as a pastor in the lives of, I'm not minimizing that. I'm not making light of that. What I am saying is that God is sovereign over all of that. That stuff doesn't just happen to you. And if we don't get that, our lives will be tipped over all the way into glory. Where will we find the joy? Where will we get the peace that passes all in? We won't. You you can't tell people when planes fly into buildings that God had nothing to do. There's nothing God could have done. As if God is, is, is asleep on the throne. Nothing he could have done to try to protect God's reputation. What's the matter with you people? If that's the size of my God, I have no interest in him. And you know what? I don't need to be here now. We ought to just all go to the beach. I want a God who's sovereignly in control over everything. Every single thing that happens, I want to know that he is in control of it. Because it's the only place I'm going to find any peace. It's the only place I'm going to find it. So let's look at the context of the life. Because next week when we come back, I think we're going to be at John the Baptist. So we're going to be at 30 years. 30 years. So Luke 2.40 is birth to 12. Watch. This is birth to 12. And the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. That's birth, that's birth to 12 years. That was at the beginning of the passage. Remember? Last week. Now the close of the passage, 2.52. 2.52. This is 12 to 30. Theoretically, the 30 is the age of the start of his public ministry. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Clearly, you hear the echo, right? You hear the echo of 1 Samuel 2.26. We know about the boy Samuel. The boy Samuel grew. And he grew what? In the stature and the favor with God and men. We hear the echoes all throughout the Old Testament. We hear these echoes. But what does this tell you? There's no increase of the divine nature But his human nature had to grow like any child has to grow. He had to grow mentally and emotionally and spiritually and physically. And sometimes it's hard to grasp that. But he was fully man. He really did thirst. He really did get hungry. He really was tempted. He he, he really was grieved. He really did cry. The only thing he didn't do was sin. So when he intentionally stayed behind, he wasn't sinning against his parents. He was sending a message. Simeon said a sword is going to pierce your soul. Didn't it pierce both of their souls when they were trying to find him? Of course, in their whole lives, the sword was piercing their soul. They knew what was coming. They couldn't even speak to him about it. So he stays and he speaks to the religious leaders. But then for 18 years, he lives in obscurity. Just imagine all of the trivial things he had to deal with. For 18, but he was obedient to his parents. Until the call. And at 30, John launches and Jesus follows. It's a beautiful picture. So here it is. Here, take this. This is, this is I promise this is worth the price of admission. Hebrews 
son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Oh, my. And Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy set before Jesus? Put your name in there, please. Put your, put, put your name in there. Put your name. That was the joy set before him. Certainly the glory of God. And we, we understand the deepest theological truth, of course. But you were on his heart. He, he, he had you on his heart. He thought of you. He loved you with an everlasting love and was willing to die in your place. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he grew through what? Suffering. When was the la- Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you grew? When the clouds were fleecy and the sky was blue and the sun was brightly shining. When was the last time you were growing on that day? Those aren't the days we grow. We grow when the storm winds blow in and we are crushed under the weight of the waves of challenge. That's how we grow. And if the Lord Jesus Christ grew through suffering, should we expect anything less? Shame on us. God forbid. Jesus received a crown of thorns on this side of the grave. And we expect a crown of glory? Never. May we learn how to suffer as the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. If Jesus had to grow through a lifetime of adversity, God forbid that we would expect anything less. There's the gospel. You've heard it. It's true. It eliminates your self-salvation project. What does that mean? You're able to stop trying to save yourself. You don't have to continue trying to work your way into God's favor. You don't have to try to do all the right things and get cleaned up and do all that. You don't do any of that. You transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus. Jesus is who he says he is. The angel said you will name him Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Jesus has come to save you from your sins. This is a time of invitation. Come. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Don't get cleaned up. Don't try to figure things out. Don't try to get... Come as you are. And Christ says, I will give you rest. That's salvation. That's the gospel. That's the truth. Is it your truth today? This morning is a morning of salvation. Tonight it may not be. Tomorrow may not come. Now is the time to accept Christ as Savior and Lord. By grace through faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that you are so merciful to give the gift of repentance and faith. Father, we pray right now if anyone here in this sanctuary or by way of the internet has never surrendered control to the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would raise them from death to life. Pray that you would give the gift of repentance and faith. And then, Father, we pray this, that you would give them the confident assurance that once they are in Christ, nothing will ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this day and for your word. Your word is true. Sanctify all of us by it. And for those who have been walking for decades, strengthen us in our faith. 
Give us clear gospel pictures of this truth that you are sovereign over all things. And we receive that truth today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you stand, continue worshiping with us?